Several years ago, my uncle and aunt went to buy a car. They went to the dealership. They found one that they liked. They did the whole money thing, and then they were given the keys. And as they were driving away, my aunt turned to my uncle, who was driving, and said, so do you like it? And he said, yeah, I love it. She said, are you sure about the color? And he went, yeah, of course I'm sure about the color. I love navy blue. She said, it's not navy blue, it's purple. <laughs> See, I and my uncles all suffer from color blindness. And this has resulted in much hilarity in our family over the years. See, the way we see things matters. And today, we're going to hear Jesus tell a parable that challenges the way we see things about money. If we haven't met, my name is Ellis. I'm one of the pastors here at Chapel Hill. We're continuing in our series called Mastering Your Money. Today we're in Luke chapter 19. You can find that in the Bibles in front of you. It's on page 878 of the Bibles in front of you. Luke chapter 19, page 878 of the Pew Bibles in front of you. Over this series, we've been learning from Jesus what it looks like to master your money rather than your money mastering you. And I have to confess, last week, I allowed my mathematics to get all out of kilter and the money mastered me. I said something was worth $25 million and I carried a zero when I shouldn't have and it was 25,000 instead of 25 million. So apologies for the false information I gave you last week. I made a mistake, please forgive me. But in Luke 19, we're gonna begin in verse 11. As they heard these things, he, Jesus, proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So the context of the parable that we're about to hear, Jesus is about to tell us, is that he is approaching Jerusalem. And his followers believe that he is going to enter Jerusalem and when he is there, he's going to be crowned king of the Jews, the true king of the Jews. They believed, his followers believed Jesus was God's Messiah, a king who had been prophesied about hundreds of years earlier that God was going to send to his people. And Jesus was the Messiah, but he was not about to be crowned king in Jerusalem. And Jesus tells this parable to to make that clear. Verse 12, he said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. So the Jews who are listening to this would be familiar with this context. Within the last 70 years, two times, a Jewish ruler had gone away to a far country, the country of Rome, to be crowned king of the Jews and to then return and rule and reign. So as Jesus is telling this parable and setting the scene, the Jews would have known, ah, This is a time of great political instability in this country. In this country, they're not sure who their future leader is going to be. Things are a a little uneven right now. And these two verses together actually clue us in on an interpretive key for the parable. Verse 11 told us that Jesus told this parable because his followers expected him to be crowned king in Jerusalem. And we know that didn't happen, right? The readers who are reading this. And then verse 12 told us that a nobleman went to a far country to be crowned king. So who do you think Jesus is trying to tell us that the nobleman is? Jesus himself. Jesus is telling his followers that instead of being immediately crowned king when they enter Jerusalem, 
He's going to go away and receive his kingdom, receive his kingship before returning. Jesus is in fact referring to his ascension into heaven where he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. He is the King of kings. And from that place, he will return to earth one day as that true king to rule and reign in justice and peace. So keep that in mind. The nobleman is Jesus. The nobleman represents Jesus in this parable. Back to the parable. Verse 13. Calling ten of his servants, a nobleman's servants, he gave them ten minars and said to them, engage in business until I come. So a minar was worth about three months' wages for a laborer. Today that might be, you know, fifteen to twenty thousand dollars. And as the nobleman departs, with the servants not knowing, is he going to be the next king? Is he not going to be the next king? He gives his servants an instruction. He says, engage in business until I come. Now, Jesus' original listeners would have understood that what the nobleman was saying to the servants here wasn't just, hey, I'm giving you a small business loan while I'm gone, and I want you to use it. He was saying more than that. He was actually instructing his servants to conduct business under his name while he was gone. So one servant might have gone ahead and started his future majesty's royal rug store. Another servant might have started his future majesty's regal cookware shop. This was not just a small business loan. This was the nobleman asking his servants to engage in business under his name, in his name. And yet, as we read in the very next verse, that engagement in business is going to be fraught with difficulty. Verse 14, but his servants, his citizens rather, hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. So these servants who have been given money face a nation that opposes the very man under whose name they've been asked to engage in business. And this is the first of three different vision corrections that Jesus gives us in this parable. And the first one is this. We are called to shift our view of the world from opposition to opportunity. A few weeks back, I was at a a neighborhood pumpkin carving event. I got chatting to a young couple who were there that I hadn't met before. And in the course of the conversation, they asked me what I did. When I tell people what I do, it usually elicits one of two responses. Either they lean in and they want to hear more, or they lean back and they fold their arms and they want nothing to do with me. So I shared with them, I'm a pastor. And funnily enough, they didn't lean back and fold their arms. So I thought, ah, they must be churchgoers. So I said to them, did you grow up around the church? And they said, oh no, we've never attended church in our lives. So I was very confused with the leaning in when I told them I was a pastor. And so I kept my mouth shut and I let them keep speaking. And they said, but we've been talking recently about the sort of value that the community a church offers can provide, especially when you're raising kids. So I think we'd be really interested in checking out church. I was blown away. I I said to them, "That's, that's great. We, we have this thing called Alpha. 
It's for people who have no church experience or background. We'd love you to come and join us. I explained what it was, and they said, that sounds amazing. We would love to come to Alpha, and they're planning to come in January. But here's here's what happened. I thought this young couple were going to be oppositional. Oh, we've never been to church in our life. But instead of being an opposition, they were actually a God-given opportunity. You know, it can be easy in our cultural context where Christianity is viewed increasingly more negatively to see the world around us as opposition. Just like the citizens in, in this parable were in opposition to the nobleman and his servants. However, Jesus calls us not to see the world as opposition, but as opportunity. In the parable, the servants are instructed to engage in business until the nobleman returns. Who do you think they're to engage in business with? The citizens, the very citizens who are opposed to the nobleman's rule and reign as king. They are called not to view them as opposition, but to view them as opportunity. In the same way, Jesus calls us to shift our vision of the world around us and not view those outside of the church as opposition, as opposed to who we are and what we stand for but as an opportunity that the Lord is presenting to us to engage with them in the name of our master, Jesus. So, this leaves the servants with a choice. Do they go ahead and engage in business under the master's name with these people who are opposed to their master? If they do, they're going to face opposition. Even if they view it as an opportunity, they're going to be opposed. And, and perhaps if the master doesn't come back as king, it's going to be even worse. If someone else is crowned king and they're there and they're engaging in business under the master's name, it could be bad for them. So what are they going to do with this command that has been given to them by the nobleman? Verse 15, when he, the nobleman, returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your minar has made ten minars more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you've been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your minar has made five minars. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. So the nobleman has been crowned king. He returns. The time of political instability is over. The nation's future leadership is secured. And the king goes back to his servants to see how they got on. So the first servant he calls tells him, "Ah, your money increased tenfold. Second servant tells him, your money increased fivefold. Now, I don't imagine that in the context of the parable, the, the nobleman was gone for maybe more than a few months while he traveled to another country. And so I'm not sure how they made a tenfold and a fivefold return on an investment, but whatever pyramid scheme these guys had going, I want in. And it seems that's the point, right? It seems that they're celebrated for getting this big return on the investment. However, I don't think that is the point Jesus wants to make in this passage. And this leads us to the second shift that Jesus calls us to have in our vision. First shift was to shift from viewing the world as opposition to opportunity. The second shift is regarding our role. We must shift our view of our role from fruitfulness to faithfulness. 
Mother Teresa was a Catholic nun who devoted her whole life to serving the poor people of India on behalf of Jesus. It was a seemingly insurmountable task, with more people dying on the streets of Calcutta, where she lived, than she could ever possibly hope to serve. One time, a journalist asked her, how do you keep going knowing that you will never be successful in meeting the needs of all the people? Here's how she responded. She said, I am not called to be successful. I'm called to be faithful. In reading this parable, it's quite easy for us living in a a capitalist society to believe that these two servants were commended for how successful they had been at investing the money, that they were commended for the, the fruitfulness of their business endeavors. It's only natural to view it that way when we live in the society we live in. But I believe that this parable, in this parable, the nobleman was less concerned with the fruitfulness of the servants, that is how much money they made, and more concerned with the faithfulness of the servants. That is how diligent they were to follow the master's command to engage in business under his name. Now, there are two things that tell us this. First, the master's command, back in verse 13. Take a look back with me. He, calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minars and said to them, engage in business until I come. Now, that Greek word for engage in business doesn't mean go and make a profit. It simply means conduct trading. The command is just to put the master's money to work under his name in what would be a hostile environment. Faithfulness to this command is the goal. The master doesn't state, you've got to go and make a profit on my money. He just says, you've got to go to work under my name with my money. So first, the master's command tells us that faithfulness is the priority. And second, so does the master's response. Verse 17, and he said to him, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little you shall have authority over 10 cities. The master commends his servant not for the amount of money that he has made, but for his faithfulness. He knows how difficult it must have been to engage in business under the master's name, given the opposition. And yet, the servant was faithful to the master's command regardless. In the same way, Jesus, who's represented by the nobleman in this passage, Jesus has entrusted his servants, that's us, his followers, with his wealth. Just notice for a second how the two faithful servants respond to the master. They say, Lord, your manar has made. Lord, your manar. Everything we own comes from God. Every good and perfect gift comes from God, James writes in his epistle, and that is including but not limited to our money and our possessions. And we are instructed by Jesus through this parable not necessarily to use our money to turn a profit, although that would be nice. I don't think anyone would be opposed to that. But we are instructed to be faithful to Jesus's command to go and use the resources he has given us to engage with the world, to engage in in business, in work with the world in the name of our master Jesus. That is, as representatives of 
Jesus. This means God is more concerned with how we conduct our business than with how much money we make. God doesn't judge us on the basis of our profit or on the basis of our income, but on the basis of our faithfulness. Frankly, God doesn't care how much money we make. He cares whether we're faithful to Him in our endeavors. Do we represent the master well in the handling of his resources, or do we not? If someone were to look at your business transactions or your personal financial transactions, would they be able to tell that you are a representative of Jesus or not? That's what the nobleman is concerned with in this passage, and that's what God is concerned with with us. Sometimes we'll turn a profit. Sometimes we'll make a ton of money. Sometimes we won't. And in God's economy, that's okay as long as we are being faithful to what the Lord has commanded us. So, Jesus calls us to shift our vision, first, of the world from opposition to opportunity, second, to shift our vision of our role from fruitfulness to faithfulness, And there is one final vision shift in this parable. Let's keep reading. Verse 20. Then another servant came, saying, Lord, here is your manar, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. The third servant we meet at this point had a very different response to the master's command to engage in business. He hedged his bets. He knew that the nobleman might not return as king, and and just in case... He chose not to engage in business under his master's name, but rather to keep his head down and just hope for the best. Unfortunately for him, his master was crowned king, and when it came time for him to account for his use of the master's money, he tried to explain away his decision-making process. Verse 21, For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. I recently introduced my children to the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. Anyone seen the Pirates of the Caribbean movies? They do a fantastic job of encouraging you to love pirates, (laughs) especially Captain Jack Sparrow. Who doesn't love Captain Jack Sparrow? But the reality is a pirate is someone who engages in piracy. That's robbery. A pirate is someone who takes what they didn't deposit. A pirate is someone who reaps what they didn't sow. And that is the very description that the third servant uses of his master. Let me read verse 21 to you again. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. The third servant viewed his master as a pirate. And this begs the question, Was this nobleman truly a pirate? It appears as if the nobleman agrees. Keep reading, verse 22. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest." You know, at first glance, it appears that the the nobleman agrees with the servant's assessment. Yet when we look a little bit deeper, we see that the nobleman's response actually has a kind of hint of sarcasm in it. And in this way, he calls the servant's bluff. 
But to realize this, we must know that collecting interest on a loan was illegal under Jewish law. Throughout the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, God's people are commanded not to exact interest from anyone to whom they loan money. So what the master is really saying to the servant is something more like this. So you've experienced me as a severe man, have you? You you believe that I'm a lawbreaker, stealing from others, do you? Well, if that's true, why didn't you go ahead and break the law on my behalf? Why didn't you take my money and illegally lend it out and gain interest on it? See, the master does not actually agree with the servant's assessment of his character, but instead he responds in this kind of mildly sarcastic manner, calling the servant's bluff. He says, if it's the case that I'm really a pirate, why didn't you take my money and go and conduct piracy? If I am really severe and evil and a thief, why didn't you take my money and act in that manner? I would have been fine with it. And this leads us to the third vision shift that Jesus calls us to in this parable, to shift our view of God from pirate to patron. How we see God has a huge impact on how we handle our money. In the parable, God is represented by the nobleman, right? And the third servant's view of the nobleman is that he's a pirate. He's a, he's a thief, a robber. I, I would anticipate that the third servant thinks that if he went ahead and he conducted business and he made a loss, let's say he just made a loss, okay, that when the nobleman returned, the nobleman would say, where's my money? And if the man said, oh, I, I don't have it, the nobleman would say, well, I'm going to take it back. I'm going to repossess your house and your car and all these other things. Obviously, maybe a donkey rather than a car, but... The the third servant thinks of the nobleman as a pirate, someone who takes what is not theirs. And as a result, he's paralyzed by fear. He's so afraid of losing the money and the possible consequences of it that he hides the money away. And by doing that... He is unfaithful to the master's command to engage in business. See, the master, though, is not a pirate. The master's a patron. The master's someone who, who gives financially to others. That's what a patron is. A patron is someone who gives freely of their money to others. The, the master gives his money to the servants because he wants them to do business on his behalf. He empowers his servants to act on his behalf, not not because he wants to get a return on the investment, but because he wants to give his servants the opportunity to work for him. It's all right, they just don't like what I'm saying. (laughs) Thanks, choir, we love you. Uh, Every summer, my kids set up a lemonade stand during our neighborhood garage sale. Uh, They do all the work themselves, and I'm really proud of them for that. However, they do make their lemonade with ingredients from my pantry. And they do use the water from my tap. And they do set it up on a table that I own. And they put the lemonade in a dispenser that I purchased. And they use cups that I bought that were sitting in my garage. Yet at the end of the day, when they've made like around $50, clearly a lemonade stand is more lucrative than I thought, I don't come to them and say, hey, you guys got to pay me back for all the materials that you borrowed and stole from me. I don't do that. 
I am just delighted that they've taken my stuff and gone ahead and made some money. I'm just delighted that they've used my resources to go and bless those people who are coming through our neighborhood garage sale with lemonade on a hot day. And if they hadn't made any money, I couldn't care less. I'm just so glad that they went ahead and did something with the things that I own, that they tried to bless others, that they used the resources they were given to engage with the world. It's the same with God. God doesn't give us his resources and then get concerned about whether we turn a profit or not. He couldn't care less. He's got all of the resources in the universe. What does it matter if we don't make a return on his financial investment in us? He's got everything. It doesn't matter. God gives to us because he wants to give us the opportunity to act on his behalf and bless the world. He loves to see us engaged in business on his behalf, and he is delighted when we use the resources he has given us to do it. God's not a pirate. He's a patron. He doesn't steal what is not his. He gives generously out of his abundance. And it is from that belief in God, when we view God correctly as a generous God who will give and give and give and give, when we see God that way, it frees us up. It frees us up to work hard. It frees us up to give generously. It frees us up to serve and bless the world around us because we know we have a loving Father who's given good gifts to us. And even if we mess it up, He will continue to pour out His grace upon us. And we're free. We're free to go ahead and be faithful to Him in our endeavors. Not because we have to, but because we get to. So, Jesus invites us to three different vision shifts in this passage to shift our view of the world from opposition to opportunity, to shift our view of our role from fruitfulness to faithfulness, and to shift our view of God from pirate to patron. We serve a generous God. He is given abundantly of himself, and we are called to be faithful to him in our use of those resources. Not necessarily turning a profit, but diligently using his resources to bless the world around us as we engage with them under his name as representatives of Jesus. However, if we do not use God's resources to work on his behalf, there is a consequence. And we read about that in the last verses of the parable. Verse 24, And he, the nobleman, said to those who stood by, take the manar from him and give it to the one who has the ten manars. They said to him, Lord, he has ten manars. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. There are consequences to rejecting the truth about God. The master takes his money back from the unfaithful servant. He gives it to one of the servants who is faithful. And he doesn't penalize him any further. He just returns that servant to the state he was at the start of the parable. But more than this, 
The parable finishes with a cliffhanger. This new king commands all those who've consciously and actively opposed his kingship to be brought before him and be killed. But before that happens, the parable ends. We don't know the fate of the rebellious citizens. One day, Jesus, the true king, will return. Having received his kingship in heaven, he will return to earth and he will enact judgment. That time has not yet come, but it will come. And the open-ended nature of this parable, the kind of cliffhanger ending of the parable, is just like the open-ended nature of our current age. We still have a chance. And if you are hearing this today and you realize that you have been actively opposing Jesus's kingship over your life, there is still time for you to repent and acknowledge Jesus as your true king. He has taken the death that you deserve on your behalf. All you need to do is acknowledge that he is king. And if you're hearing this today and you, and you realize maybe you identify with that third servant and you realize I've been unfaithful in my use of God's money, maybe you've kind of kept it back from him. You, you haven't engaged in the way that he's called you to. Maybe you've been engaging with the world, but you haven't done it in a Christ-like manner. Maybe you haven't done it in the name of Jesus. You've been doing it in your own name and for your own betterment and achievement. If you would identify in any way with those, then here's the good news. Jesus has already paid the price for your unfaithfulness. On the cross, Jesus took what we alone deserved for our sin, that is death. And in exchange, we receive what he alone deserved, and that is life eternal. And the open-ended nature of this parable says there is still time to turn to him. There is still time to return to him before that judgment day and receive his forgiveness. And so this morning, I invite you to come before the Lord in confession and repentance, and repent of where we have not rightly viewed the world, or our role, or God. So would you join me in prayer? Father, we come to you, and we are sorry. We are sorry that we have viewed you at times as someone who's stingy, who takes what is not yours, Lord, we're sorry that we have viewed our role as being about turning a profit at whatever cost. Sorry that we've maybe viewed our role as engaging in business in our own name rather than in your name. Lord, we're sorry that we haven't seen the world like you see the world. That we've viewed the world as just opposition, a place to be avoided, rejected haven't seen it as you see it. But we come to you and we confess that we have fallen short. We've been unfaithful. Every single one of us. We thank you, Jesus, that you've paid the price for our sin. Thank you that you are such a generous God that you have poured out your grace upon us in the person of Christ. And if we come to you humbly, debt is paid 
Our sin is gone. We have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, and we are now free. So Lord, we come to you this morning, and we ask for your forgiveness. And Lord, this morning, we place you on the throne of our lives. We declare that you are king, that you rule, you reign above all things, above all names, above all powers, that you are seated on the throne. And we thank you that you invite us to be your servants, to act on your behalf. And we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, we would be diligent in doing that. This morning, we give you the glory. You are the king. You are the king of kings, the Lord, the Holy One, in whose name we pray.
Chapel Hill Church. If you'd like to visit us in person, we're located at 7700 Scancy Avenue, Gig Harbor, Washington. Our worship services are Sundays at 9 and 10.30. We hope to see you there. To learn more about our upcoming events, visit us online at chapelhillpc.org. Jesus, you are king of all. You are seated high above all thrones, all powers, all dominions, all principalities. And we praise you and worship you today. And we ask that you pour out your spirit upon us, that we may go from this place to be faithful to your commands to us, that we would be your representatives, your ambassadors here on this earth. By the power of your spirit and in the name of your son, Jesus, we ask this. Amen. 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 Well, what a pleasure to be here this morning with you, to worship with you. Thank you for coming and joining us. Uh, a reminder about what Pastor Julie said earlier. If you didn't get one of these cards on the way in, grab one from the ushers on the way out. Take that away this week. Spend some time in prayer, in discussion with uh, those whom you uh, share your, your money, your resources, whether that's a spouse or a family member, and come back next week ready to be invited to make a decision about what the Lord is calling you to in your journey of generosity. Uh, if you're new here this morning, Pastor Julie's at the Woodwall. She'd love to meet you. She's got a gift that she'd love to give you. If you'd like to meet Todd Davis, our interim director of high school ministries, he's going to be back there at the Woodwall as well. And if you need prayer for anything, we've got a prayer team. We're going to be in the prayer chapel behind that stained glass window that you can access around the corner there. They would love to pray for you. So please go and receive prayer. And I'd love to leave you with a blessing. The way we receive a blessing around here is to raise up our hands. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his perfect peace, both now and forevermore. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.